absolutely nuts. But I got through it. So this time, when the opportunity came, I thought, this is, this is going to be a breeze. I've done this before. I'm 29 years old in the Lord right now, so, and I've taught for a while, so this is going to be easy. I woke up at 1.15 last night. And my, my story went through my head until about 5 o'clock this morning. And it changed several times in the course of that time. But what I want to do is I want to deliver a message today that, that's coming from my heart. The scripture I put up this morning is from Proverbs 14.34. It says that righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. When we look at the book of Proverbs, it sits in the midst of the Old Testament. And so we think, well, that's Old Testament stuff. But Proverbs covers the full gamut of God's timetable. It is, it is a message, it's a book that is just as relevant to the New Testament church as it was during the time of the Old Testament. So when we look at this and we see that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, what does that mean? And especially, what does it mean for us today in these United States? We have here represented several, probably three generations, what we call three generations of people. Each generation changes about every 40 years. And each generation has its own set standards, so to speak. I remember when I was a kid, my parents thought it was absolutely disgusting for Elvis Presley and the Beatles and all that sort of thing, and the things that took place, the one, the music that we really liked. My generation hates the stuff that's out here today. So see the standards change. Each generation has a different set of standards, so to speak. And we think about Ralph says he's 91 years old. That may even put him in a generation before mine. So he has seen a lot of change that's gone on in that time frame. The relevance today. In 1999, the United States became a debtor nation. And in 10 years, it has become the largest debtor nation in all of history. During my time, we were the richest nation on earth. We were feared and respected by all, even the communist nations who put up the big front, because when we finally challenged them, they folded up. During Ralph's time, he's, he's seen uh, World War II. I imagine then, at the beginning of World War II, things looked pretty bleak, because this is something we didn't want to get involved in, but we got thrust into it at Pearl Harbor. Why are we experiencing what we're experiencing today? Not just in the way of debt, but do you realize, I think I was about 10 years old, and I think as in, I know I was in the mid-50s, in 1956. There was a tornado, it was an F5. Of course, they didn't have categorized tornadoes then. They didn't categorize them at all. There was no warnings for them. They just appeared, did what they did, and left. And the destruction left behind, we were left to deal with. My family was not an ambulance chaser, was not a <clears throat> fire truck chaser, but my dad says, we're going to go see this, a tornado that took place in Kansas. 
and completely wiped the town of Udall, Kansas off the face of the map. Literally everything in that town was gone. Even some foundations were pulled up out of the ground. I witnessed straw driven through concrete. You could see a piece of straw stuck in there. It was a three mile long line of people in line to see and witness this. And it was, why was that? It's because it was so rare that a whole town just simply annihilated. Now, pretty commonplace, is it not? We hear of each year of towns and communities being wiped off the face of the map. Total destruction. Even here in Oklahoma, Moore, Oklahoma, saw two tornadoes down the same path. So what's happening? Why are we seeing this? Oklahoma has experienced droughts in the past years when southern Oklahoma has just been begging for food for cattle. Lasting for more than a year, year and two years sometimes. We have seen towns, cities in the United States, white, slick, New Orleans, taken out. Texas, Houston's been hit twice recently. We've seen fires raging in California. Across the northern plains of the United States right now, it's too cold to grow crops. In California, there's a man-made drought going on. We're seeing all this activity in our nation and maybe wondering why. Our economy's collapsing. We're experiencing natural disasters. We're experiencing upheaval in our own system. I was reading an article the other day, a man who has lived through the communist uh, uh, Russian times, when he knows what uh, totalitarianism is, he says he is predicting an upheaval in our United States in the next year. A civil strife. We haven't seen that since the 1860s, a civil strife. What's taken place? What's happening to our country? And again, I mentioned the generation thing. When I was a kid, church was where you're supposed to be. Although I didn't enjoy it, that's where you're supposed to be. And I was there. I was raised in Sunday school and church. And people respected and honored those who were church people. Church had an influence in the movie industry. Church had an influence on publications, but it's no longer the case. If we stand up here in the pulpit and preach against certain activities, it is now deemed hate speech, even though we're teaching right out of the Bible. Why is that? I think it's because we've lost something. The church has lost her influence. Now there are mega churches going on with thousands and thousands of people who attend on a Sunday meeting. In the morning, in the evening, on Wednesdays. And yet we see the moral decline taking place in our nation. A moral decline that has brought us down to the depths. And we're still sliding. We don't see the opportunity. We don't see that change that we need to see taking place. 
One of the things we learned from the Old Testament, and that's history. The Bible is a history book also, not just a, a guidance book, but it's a book on health, it's a book on socialization, but it's also a history book. A few years ago, we went through the Old Testament. We started there verse by verse, going from Genesis 1 right on up. And I had an opportunity to teach some of those classes. Most of all, I had an opportunity to learn. And I noticed that the nation of Israel presents to us the dilemma we face today. Israel declined the judges. When they went in to take the land, judges were set up and they took care of it. The priests of the communities are the ones who administered to the people. And then the judges are the ones who made the ultimate decisions on things that couldn't be decided. But they decided they didn't want a judge. They wanted a king like the other nations around them. That's what they told Samuel, their judge. And Samuel went to God and says, this is what the people are asking for. And he says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So I will give them a king. And so God chose a king for Israel, just like the other nations. His name was Saul. Saul at the beginning looked like he was going to be pretty good. But it turned out Saul wasn't all that good. In fact, Saul was so bad that God rejected him. And he says, I'm going to put someone after my own heart on the throne. And so then David ascended to the throne of, of Israel. The thing that Israel coalesced under one king. And because David followed the precepts of God and he taught the precepts of God and he sang the precepts of God, even though David made mistakes, he always sought God in everything. In the process, the nation of Israel became the strongest nation around. They pushed all their enemies away from them, pushed them out of the country. And at the close, close to the end of David's life, it says that they were at peace with everybody around them. Because they were the strongest, because they, people feared them, because they were a God-fearing nation. And then Solomon took the reins after him. And Solomon said... In a dream, he says, you have given me a great people to rule and reign <clears throat> over. Would you give me wisdom to do so? And God says, yes, I'll be glad to. And because you have asked not for the death of your enemies, I will also give you riches and honor and give you the wisdom also. And so for that many, many years in there, as long as Solomon ruled and reigned, according to God's precepts, the nation of Israel prospered. But when Solomon decided he wasn't going to use that wisdom anymore, but rather he was going to do his own thing, the nation began to decline. And when he passed on, he passed on his reign to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was not a God-fearing man at all. And in the course of three short years, the nation of Israel was divided. And when we look at the history then, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, in the northern kingdom they never once ever had a single good king, not one at all who feared God, but rather did his own thing. And in the process of time, God brought them through the prophets, warned them to return to God. He warned them a time and time again, but they wouldn't do it. The kings and the priests. And in the process of time, God says, that's enough. 
And so in 723 B.C., Israel, the northern kingdom, became slave to Assyria. A fierce and ugly and hateful nation. And that's what God had told them through the prophets, that if you do not repent and follow me, I will turn you over to people who do not respect life. Well, even with that, the kingdom of Judah was still having its ups and downs. They had had good kings. In fact, they had had seven good kings. The thing is, is having those good kings in between times, they had some bad ones. Now, when the kings and the priests were in concert, the nation prospered and again pushed the enemies out away from them and they secured their borders. But when the priesthood and the king or the priesthood or the king became corrupt, here came that influx of the enemy again. And finally, God said, that's enough. In 606 BC, Babylon come in and took over Judah. And in 586 BC, completely and utterly destroyed the temple site. And so Israel was then dispersed to the other countries, to the enemies. Again, a fierce, mean, and unholy country. And not until 1948 did the nation of Israel reappear again according to God's promise. Here's the key issue. The priest who were given the law and the king who was given the command of the, of the country. As long as they were in concert and they were following God, Israel prospered. But once they left that state, Israel declined. And finally, their enemies came over, came in and took them over and destroyed everything, leaving only a remnant of people the very poor. And not only that, they brought in foreigners into the land to live there. Again, the poorest of the surrounding countries. What does that have to do with us? We learn from history. Or rather, we don't learn from history. We used to be a nation that respected and feared God. We used to have laws that uplifted God's commands. But what have we seen lately? We have five states now that say, in fact, the first state was told by, by the uh, Supreme Court of the state, you will make laws allowing same-sex marriage. Five states now recognize that. It's just going to continue. What does God's law say about it? Well, do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? you remember the story? Now, some will tell you, well, that's not because of the sexual perversity that took place there, but rather just because they didn't do what they're supposed to do. If you believe that, read the book of Jude. It says they were clearly eliminated from the face of the earth, them and the surrounding cities in that plain, because of their sexual perversity and immorality. 
And now it's come to pass in our United States that same thing is taking place. Just the other day, the administration announced that the United States was going to provide benefits for same-sex marriage partners. Were they first? Let me hearken back a few years ago. What did the church do? The church has started incorporating homosexual, acting homosexuals in the ministry, in the pulpit. Now, let me ask you this. I want to ask you this. Does God hate anything? God's a God of love, right? Does he hate anything? For those of those who may not have heard the Sunday school lesson, God says that he hates things. He says he hates divorce. He says, and Esau have I hated. This is a person, a named person God says he hates. Now, who's Esau? He's the twin brother to Jacob. But God said he hates him. Ooh. How about Proverbs chapter 6? Let me read this to you. Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. That word from the King James is abominable. You can't get worse than abominable. It is the lowest you can get. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to run into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and listen to this, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Are the things that God hates? Even men, they're men that God hates. Men that stir up dissension among brothers. Hands that shed innocent blood. And this brings me to another point. In 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States found something in the Constitution that says a woman has a right to choose to carry that life within her or not. And so from each year, from that time on, we have had 1.2 to 1.5 million babies aborted in the womb. Now you figure out how many that comes to since 1973. What does Proverbs 6 say? Hands that shed innocent blood. He hates. Anybody recognize the name George Tiller? George Tiller is a doctor operated out of Wichita, Kansas, just three and a half hours from here. He performed late-term abortions right up to the time of delivery. Became a multi-millionaire doing it. Found an excuse any time a woman wanted to abort, he'd take care of it. Just two weeks ago today, he was shot and killed. Do you know where he was when he was shot and killed? serving in his church. And I don't know about you, but I see an irony here. This is a church that 
ask a man to be a leader in that church who had no compunction, no problem, killing babies, even right up to the time of delivery. Our United States Congress, through the third part of the legislature, through the third part, through the judicial system, says it is legal to do that. What does God's word say? He hates the shedding of innocent blood, the hands that shed innocent blood. I see the irony of this of God saying, here's a man serving in church, and he dies in front of everybody through a gunshot. Whether you think he deserved it or not, whether you think the man had a right to kill him, that's for you to decide. The fact is, George Tiller's life ended in a church that accepted him doing what he did. <clears throat> How about right here in the state of Oklahoma? A three-time loser rapes a five-year-old girl. The judge gives him a one-year sentence in prison. He gets out in September. He's going to be back on the street. One year, third time loser. How about our judicial system? Is there anything wrong with it? You can read every day. You go to on, online or, or read the newspapers or anything you want to and you can see time after time again where the judicial system does not come up to standard because the people who sit in that judicial position do not fear God. And so we can kill babies in the womb. I simply say to you, if I struck anybody's nerve here, if you're thinking, well, you know, a woman might have the right to decide, I'm simply going to say this. That if you think it's okay to kill a baby in the womb, then you do not understand the process of salvation. Life begins at conception. If you don't believe me, read Psalm 139. Please read Psalm 139. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and you know right well. Before I was ever brought forth, you knew me. Life comes from God. It comes, it begins at conception. And although that baby can't live outside the womb for the first six months, it's still alive. God put that life there. And we, through the court system or any others, do not have the right to take that life. It is alive. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's, that's life. That's the conception. And it says, What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's birth. Life begins at conception. Birth takes place nine months later. Life begins for the Christian when he says yes to Jesus Christ. His birth takes place at baptism. You see the correlation? 
if you don't comprehend that, you do not understand salvation. <clears throat> and yet our judicial system says it's okay to terminate life in the womb. God says, I hate the hands that take innocent life. <clears throat> so my contention is, God's not very pleased with us. Not even a little bit. I think the natural disasters we're seeing is a result of forfeiting our fear of God. I think our economic situation comes about because we do not fear God. Proverbs tells us that the borrower is subject to the lender. You don't believe me? Just a few weeks ago, one of our U.S. naval aircraft carriers was sitting off the coast of China. You ever seen one of those up close? Wow! A little old boat comes off the shore with a few Chinese communist soldiers. And they approach our aircraft carrier and says, We don't want you in our waters. Get out of here. Well, by golly, what do you think they did on that aircraft carrier? They turn tail and run. Our big old ship left those Chinese waters because a little old boat come out and told them. Do you know why? Because our Navy is mortgaged to the Chinese Communist. They own the notes on the boats. And if we want them to buy any more of our debt, we have to do what they say. The borrower is subject to the lender. Did you ever think it'd come to that? Where we, the most powerful nation on earth, would bow down to a communist nation because of money? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Do we as a church hate evil? Do we stand up against it? Now we looked at in Sunday school what it means to fear God. Now some may take it as that, that trembling, that hiding the face, that backing away. But the fear of the Lord is this. You can go read it in Isaiah chapter 58. You can read it in Psalm 34. You can read it in Matthew 25. The fear of the Lord is looking after the oppressed, feeding the hungry, taking care of the homeless, standing up for your own family, clothing the naked, giving a cold cup of water to the thirsty, visiting the prisoner in prison, he repeats it over and over again. That is the fear of the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 34, it says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord, and begins that list. Another thing of fearing God is hating what God hates. And when he says that he hates the shedding of innocent blood, of the lying tongue, of the false witness, of the man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And by the way, 
That word man is not male. That word man is all-inclusive. If you don't believe me, go back and look in Genesis. And God created man in his image. And male and female, he created them. And he called them Adam. Adam's a Hebrew word for man. So it's not just male he's talking about. Anyone who stirs up dissension among brothers is in that category of what God hates. Simple thing is a Miss California Beauty pageant. Now, I don't know what to think of Carrie Prejean. But because she was willing to stand up in the face of adversity and say that she was raised to believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's the way it ought to be, she was severely chastised. In fact, if you look at the YouTube video of what she was called and the things that she's continued to be called, really a travesty. She's now been fired. Ground was taken away from her, purportedly because she didn't do what she was supposed to do as Miss California. Now, what you don't know is she was asked to do things that she was not morally obligated to do, that she didn't feel that she needed to do, but yet they used that as an excuse for her not doing what she wanted to do. How is it that the homosexual community now dictates what we can say and can't say in public in defense of our moral standards? This is where we've come today, people. This is where we are right now. We are on the slippery slope. God took nation of Israel out pieces at a time because they did not fear him. They did not do the things which his precepts command. And we have reached the same thing in this country today, where we, as the church, as the church, will not stand up against it. We've lost our influence. We no longer hold it because we have now incorporated it into us. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you read about a man who was in the Corinthian church, and Paul heard about him. The man was sleeping with his own father's wife. And when Paul heard about it, Paul got all upset. He says, I'm not there, but my spirit is, and I'm telling you to get that man out of there. Get him out because he's going to influence you. You brag about how you have become so tolerant and overlooked so much just to have somebody part of the congregation. But he says, I'm telling you, get the man out of there because his influence is going to corrupt you. And yet the mainline churches today have active participating homosexuals in the pulpit preaching the word. In the church you can find people sitting in the pews who say it's okay for a woman to choose whether or not to carry that baby to term. But God says, I hate it. And if we're going to fear God, we better hate what God hates. And we better love what God loves. He loves the orphan. He loves the widow. He loves the homeless. 
He loves the one who is thirsty and needs water. He loves the prisoner who is locked behind bars. And that's where we need to be. Oh, my goodness. Baker, you're so negative. You brought such an uplifting message today. I do have an uplifting message. It's in Psalm 91. We can overcome this, people. It's going to be a person at a time. And let me, let me go to a story first of all, before I do that. You ever read the book of Jonah? You're all familiar with Jonah and the big fish. That's what we teach the kids. That's the thing that we look at. Even Jesus referred to the time when Jonah was three days in, in the belly of the fish. But Jonah and the fish is not the point of that story. The point of that story is God told Jonah, he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell them that they are on my hit list and they are on the list for destruction. And it's because of the wickedness in that city, the actual total abomination that exists in that city. And I want you, Jonah, a Jew, I want you, Jonah, to go to a Gentile nation and tell them about my mercy and my love. And because they've rejected it, they're on the list for destruction. And when God finally got his attention through that fish, Jonah made that 450-mile trek inland on foot to tell the Ninevites that they were on God's hit list and they were set for ultimate destruction. He did it reluctantly because Jonah being a Jew, he hated Gentiles. But God didn't. God loved Gentiles. And it says that he went through this city that took him three days to walk through and said, repent or you're going to be destroyed. And the word says that from the king on down, they repented in sackcloth and ashes and God spared the city because Jonah went out and sat on a hill waiting for their destruction and it didn't come. Because they repented in sackcloth and ashes from the king on down. Now, do we have an opportunity? Do we have a chance? Yes. It's going to come from an individual effort. It's going to come from an individual effort in every congregation of this great United States of people going back to fearing God, to doing what he instructed us to do, to hating the things he hates and loving the things he loves. Now, here's the positive message. Psalm 91. This is a psalm I memorized back before Y2K. There's a lot of people getting upset, gathering all the stuff together and going to the hills because when the computer stopped, the world was going to stop. You remember that? <laughs> Even at the time, I was laughing at it. I said, this is going to be one of the greatest money-making hoaxes they pulled off. It's going to be so lucrative for those people who are involved in it. I made money off of it because I got to stay at the shop all night long until we passed that midnight hour. And I got paid overtime the whole time. <clears throat> Laughing the whole time. Psalm 91. 
He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. For I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings shall you trust. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall by your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come nigh you. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because you... Because you have chosen the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation, there shall no evil befall you, neither shall any plague come nigh your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to bear you up in their hands, that you not dash your foot against a stone. And then God speaks. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him, and with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. If it's in our hearts to fear God, if we hate the things he hates and loves the things he loves, then Psalm 91 is for us. And we will see this through. Now you may think that we've reached that point in history where it's going to happen. Because it says in the end, at the very end, that all nations will stand against Israel. All nations. That means us. We've been the friend of Israel now since their inception. 1948. We stood with them. But it says that all nations are going to stand against Israel in that end time. And so we can look at things going on around us today and think, we're here. We're getting so close. But just like I mentioned with Ralph, we thought the end was here too, the beginning of World War II, when the whole world was involved in conflict, when we were being decimated at Pearl Harbor, where every battle that we fought after that we lost for the longest time. And we thought, yep, this is it. The people banded together under the fear of the Lord, and we prevailed against that onslaught. We can do it again today. But it's got to be, it's got to come from our hearts. We have got to desire to fear God as He has directed us to fear Him. He shall call upon me, and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Father, I pray. I pray so much, Lord God, that we would repent in our hearts and do the things that you have directed us to do so that we can be pleasing to you and give glory to your Son, Jesus Christ. Today is not a day to waver. Today is not a day to become complacent. It's not a day to ignore what you've chosen us to do. It tells us in Ephesians that 
we have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works which you have before ordained that we should walk in them. So, Father, I pray it be in our hearts to do just that today. That we would see and experience a renewing in this nation, a nation that fears you and loves your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.